Do you need to know what this song is about? I don't know. When you listen to it, it's kind of clear, and it's it's the way that she's there's very plaintive, like sort of some mournful quality, um, a resig a, a sense of resignation. And that's what I love, man. I just I, I'm that I'm that type of person. I'm the mm. person that just daily thinks about crawling under my desk and just like laying on the ground. And this is the <laughs> album for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's funny. That distilled you for me. Just that. Yeah, right. like, okay. Yeah, okay. Put yeah, on some it. Rachel Yamagata. Just give up. Lay down on the floor underneath your desk. Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Well, the month of May has come and gone, and we have missed AAPI Heritage Month in its entirety. But as the saying goes, better late than never. Today we're talking about Rachel Yamagata, the singer-songwriter behind the 2003 single, Worn Me Down. That's a good song. Hello, Jason. Hello, Barry. So... Um, happy belated AAPI Heritage Month. Should we explain what that is? Asian American Pacific Islander. So, d- did you know they also changed the Library of Congress has changed it. it's Asian, it's Asian and Pacific, um, uh, Asian and Pacific American Heritage Month instead of Asian American and Pacific Islander. The, it, but they still call it AAPI Month, so it's very confusing. Yeah, well, because I remember before it was like, the, the acronym used to be API, mm-hmm. but then it became AAPI to put American mm-hmm. in there. But then it put it after Asian, but not inclusive no, of in, Pacific yeah, exactly. Islander. But I guess, I, I mean... It's more inclusive this way. Because here's the thing is like, you could be a Pacific Islander... But you could technically be like a British territory, right? Or no, are the British territory, are any of the British, British territory islands? No, I think you I guess could they're be all French. on the Atlantic, they're on the Atlantic side, right? Yeah, I think you could be French. Like if it was like Tahiti or like Bora Bora, I think it's still French maybe. Where's Tonga? Is Tonga in the Pacific? Well, there's America, there's, yeah, I guess there's, a, well, there's America and Samoa. Okay. And they're kind of in this, not in the, I don't want to, God, I don't want to be like, oh, oh no, ge- no geography yeah, yeah, quizzes yeah, yeah, today. Yeah. Okay, okay. They're just far, they're on that side. <laughs> they're far away. But anyway, anyway, um, we missed it. It was the month of May. But, okay. Between the two of us, do we have a degree in Asian American studies? That is my major. My, okay. Okay. I, so I you did end up getting the major. Okay. Yes, I, did. I couldn't remember. Cause I remember there being like, did you have a minor or a double well, it major? It started or? out as a minor. Well, it started out as a double major because I was like, I'm not going to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get two majors. I don't know where my logic was at, but I, you know, I was communications and Asian American studies. Okay. And then, you know, because of the way that my school was, it was taking me forever to finish with communications. So I was almost done with um, Asian American studies. I was like, let me, let me get the hell out of here. So <laughs> I just, I made that my primary focus. And for a long time, I felt really weird about it because, uh, you know, what do you I'm, do? What do you I'm do in with marketing. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so I was like, I don't know. What do I do? I think my mom, I feel like I remember my mom being like, what are you going to do? Write a book? And I was like, I mean, yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but well, I feel uh, like a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's like the pathway to grad school or the pathway yeah. to like law school. Well, you know, for a long time I used to say, well, I mean, I guess I understand myself better. And I used to kind of say it in sort of a mocking way. But 
because because really I just saw it as a stepping stone to having a degree so I could just travel with my with the current the job I had at the time and you know really just kind of advance my marketing career because I had experience in that in that field at that point already so it, it I, you know I wasn't really thinking of it as like super integral to like my life but yeah. over the years and especially in the last couple of years um I've really come to appreciate the you know the framework mm-hmm. um that uh, you know studying issues around race and um representation and inclusion um really gave me because on the marketing side right we we have to you know we we fight you know to be inclusive in our representation of both our clients our company um you know just the people that we want to serve and it's really important because you know for me i think it's a given sometimes and 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 then you you're in these interactions and you realize that um I, I was in one here's an example i was in one we were looking at a video and it was like a commercial for this thing we were doing it was the first commercial that had been done in this for this thing and um we're watching the video and i'm like my first comment after was there were only white people in that video and someone said oh but but there was a lady with brown hair <laughs> <laughs> and i was like a brute that no that's not so we had to go back you know and i'm like wait how did no one know this and i'm yeah. like oh you know when you sometimes are the only person of color in the room you know not only are you the one who can bring this perspective in but also sometimes like it's it really does fall on you to kind of check you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. other people because otherwise like they it's completely blind to it yeah i mean therein lies the problem of like the colorblind society mm-hmm. right like that for for so long that was maybe the gold standard right that like oh in a colorblind society like everyone is equal and that's a- actually not true mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i mean you have to achieve the equality first and then you can go colorblind yeah not the other way around yeah 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 <laughs> Because exactly. otherwise your colorblindness will allow you to perpetuate inequalities that currently exist. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really glad that you have the basis for this. I was, um, I think I was two classes away from finishing my minor in Asian American studies. Oh. And I decided to graduate early instead because I saw that I had enough credits to graduate with my major. And I was like, well, <laughs> I could take this last quarter of school, you know, it would cost however much the UC system cost in 2001, 2002, 2002 for one quarter of school and just be miserable. Or I was like, or I could just work my on-campus job during the day, go to my internship in the afternoons and just hang out with friends and yeah. eat boba, eat boba all day and all night. <laughs> so that's what I did. And I just was like, you know, forget this Asian American studies minor because... I mean, the the last classes that I actually had to take were like the intro classes. I mm. had skipped those. Oh, so you had to go back to finish after you'd already done every, like the higher I did all courses? the electives. I did all the upper division requirements for the minor. And then it was like, oh, by the way, I didn't take this one <laughs> intro class. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back. So that's why actually I have a big hole in my... Um, I feel like I have a big hole in my basics of Asian American history. Mm. Um, like we watched the Donut King documentary. Is that the one P- about the Com- Cambodian guy? Yeah. It's about yeah. why um, like there's a whole empire of Cambodian owned donut shops in California. It's where the pink box comes from. The pink yeah. pastry box. 
so that guy, you know, he he was escaping uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in the like what was that late sixties, early seventies. I think that's the part of Asian American studies that I skipped. Well, you know, you should have come to work for my company because last month I wrote the AAPI Heritage Month uh, nice, communication. Nice. And I included I, that story along with like nail salons and different okay. things. Because yeah. I think I took the first intro class, which covers up to 1965, which is like 1960, is 1965 when they unbanned Asian immigration to the United States. I think they it's might have opened up more. I know in 1949, I believe they finally repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act. Was which it? had put the quotas on it. I, that was in the four. It was it was like the end of the forties for that because it went from like the eighteen hundreds until then. But um, and then I think they lifted the quotas on other Asian country immigration, like in the sixties. Yeah. Okay. Because I remember nineteen sixty five being a big deal, and I remember there being a big cutoff. Like I really only remember studying, kind of like the, the gold rush era, the railroad era all the way up until like Chinese exclusion and then what Japanese exclusion happened in like the 1920s. Uh, yeah, I believe cause they were, yeah. Cause it was, um, yeah. Cause my family, <laughs> like my dad's side of the family came to the States in 1919 and then by 1921, I think I feel like my grandma may have been a picture bride because my grandfather brought my grandmother over in 20 would have been 1921 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they just started having having kids anyway um, well and that's and that's I mean that's why the, that's the reason there are like more Japanese American families than there are Chinese American families typically like of that like generation old, of that generation. Yeah. Because they, you know, the Chinese, when they came, when they were brought over as laborers to help build the railroads and do all the things they were restricted. So it was just the men. Yeah. And they couldn't bring their families over and then they couldn't marry because they didn't want them to stay here. So, um, you know, that, that all happened. And then in the, tw- I, yeah, in the early uh, 20th century and I think even late 19th century, um, the Japanese were seen as like preferable to the Chinese in terms of coming and, and, and they were allowed to bring families and start families and, and, you know, work on the farms and things like that. But then when they started to be very successful at farming and, you know, owning land and things, then it was like, Oh, well now you can't own land. No, you can't do these things. So it's all this, you know, it, it, yeah. You know, all of the things that you see now, like that's why there are so many like Japanese nurseries and Japanese farms in California. But yeah. you know, you, you don't always assume that that's the case. And and that's the history. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird when, whenever I meet someone who, cause like the Chinese Americans that came over in the railroad times, like the 1800s before Chinese exclusion happened. Right. Like that's the whole bachelor society thing. They couldn't mm-hmm. have any women come mm-hmm. over. So, and they, they couldn't have any women over also, Chinese men were, it was illegal for Chinese men to marry outside of their race. So yes. basically you had the whole bachelor society. Yes. I'm, that's why I'm always shocked when um, I meet a Chinese person who is like a fourth generation American or like a third generation American. It's very unusual. Because I'm like, how did, the, how did, how did it, how did it yeah. happen? Anyway, yeah. um, sorry, I'm drinking again. 
Sorry, I'm drinking today. Um, I feel like there's more recognition that AAPI Heritage Month exists. As such, entertainment platforms, etc., are <laughs> doing their best at recognizing this phenomenon. Um, I opened up my streaming entertainment apps this month, and all of them had like celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islanders. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say. A third of the movies were Jackie Chan movies. Yeah, I was going to say, it was kind of a reach for some of them. It's like, here's Mortal Kombat. And you're like, what? Yeah, it was, That's not... I, I don't, I mean, okay. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, does Jackie Chan identify as Asian American? I don't, I don't, I don't think, think he so, does. Because right? I, I don't want to, I don't want to try, I don't want to exclude anyone from the umbrella if they take on uh, the United States or uh, one of the Americas as their home. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I think Ronnie Chang, the comedian, mm. I think he identifies as Asian American because he he emigrated here mm-hmm. from Australia. Like yeah. He was he was from Australia, like Malaysia to I think he's from Malaysia to Australia to the States. And I think in that time, like pursuing his career in entertainment, like he has adopted America as something. So like okay. welcome to Asian America, right? Mm-hmm. But then I was like, I think Jackie, I don't think Jackie Chan identifies as American. Yeah, same. I just like with like Jet Li or something. I don't, I don't. I was like, oh, there's like Dev Patel movies on here. I was like, Dev Patel's British. Yeah, I was like, are they going to put True Lies in here because Tia Carrere is <laughs> in it? Like, what? I, I don't. Well, at least, at least. That would Tia make Carrere. sense. But I'm like, Wayne's I don't world. understand. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of weird. It's like, it's like, here's Mortal Kombat. Here's a Jackie Chan movie. By the way, here's every anime series that we have. Yeah. And I mean, I get it, but also at the same time, like, uh, where's Joy Luck Club? That really illustrates how abysmal Asian American representation is in entertainment and in the media. Like, mm-hmm. that we're not just scraping the bottom of the barrel. Like, we are going to a different barrel. <laughs> to fill and, our bucket. And sometimes also scraping the bottom of that. Like, that... <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that got me thinking, because then when... I was like, hey, we should do a belated AAPI Heritage Month episode. I was like, oh, like, who who are the musicians? Who do we talk about? I know you asked me and I was like, um... Because I feel like it's more common now, right? Like I, like, I know more now. Like, Bruno Mars has been around for a while now. And I'm like, okay, prominent Filipino, yeah. uh, Filipino-American. Um, but, like... Like especially if we're if if we look at like who we've talked about in this podcast is typically people from our youth or musicians from our youth. Yeah, I'm like none. I can't. Th- I can barely yeah. think of any. Like, well, in like reviewing past episodes, I was like, okay, like we talked about Didi Magno Hall, member of mm-hmm. the party. Yes, prominent uh, Filipino. Stephen also Universe, uh, kind of like a also kind of like a beacon, right? I think we both talked about like seeing her, like you saw her in Sister Act two. Yes, that's right. And you see an Asian face, and you're like, oh uh-huh. my god, it's possible. Mm-hmm. I have a face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we I talked about do, Nicole. I could be in the background. Nicole Scherzinger, also yes. uh, half Filipino. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know who's also half Asian is uh, Mutia from Sugar Babes. She's half Filipino. Not Asian American though, because she's British. Oh, oh, is that the MTK? MKS. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Hoku Ho. Hoku Ho. Is she okay? So this is the other thing that I was thinking about, <laughs> and I don't want to get. I don't. I you know again like I like to be as all encompassing as possible when talking about Asian America because I know that like um, biracial 
multi-ethnic Hapa folks, like often as adults, like express a sense of like exclusion growing up. Mm -hmm. It's very much the Mariah Carey, the meaning of Mariah Carey kind of story, right? That like a lot of um, biracial or mixed or Hapa kids growing up say like they never felt like they necessarily belonged to either culture. Like they were neither, you know, Mariah Carey was felt like she was neither black nor white. I think a lot of Hapa kids say they don't ever really feel Asian or white or, you know, whatever their other, the other half of their heritage is. So by no means do I want to be excluding anyone from like the totality of the Asian American experience. But I was noting like a phenomenon of the majority of Asian American celebrities that I could, I could think of. Most of them are like mixed. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking a lot about how there is a trend of like the leading Asian American man being Hapa. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I grew up in Hawaii, right? So uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to come from because I think, well, so let me back up. I was born in California, lived here till I was 12. My parents are from Hawaii. So when I was 12, we moved to Hawaii. So my form, I want to say like my formative years, junior high, high school, first year of college, we're in Hawaii. And it's it's one thing to come from a place where you're sort of, where you're basically a minority, right? You don't see yourself. And then you go to another place where like you're in the majority and like everyone you see somewhat looks like you, except for when you like watch TV, mm. right? And And so, so it's like, in my life, the leading men or women were Asian, right? Or mm-hmm. Asian American. But like, it wasn't validated in, you know, in the larger world. Um, but even there, you you did see like, you know, Hapa kids. It, it was like, you got the, not the best of both, but it was like, there was, it's just different, <laughs> right? Like, it was like, it, but I think that's the cool. case, right? It's like, it's like with American anything, it's like, you know, it's just, ex- it's like when you have like architecture and it's like sort of Balinese inspired or, yeah. you know, whatever, they pull like whatever makes it like just different enough, but still has the classical western ideal you know at its root yeah because i was thinking oh so so like by way of example like like ross butler who is in uh 13 reasons why he was the original asian guy on riverdale but he left riverdale to be on 13 reasons why okay he was um he's in that movie with uh levi zachary levi with the shazam shazam is that movie called shazam i don't know not Kazam starring Shaquille O'Neal. No. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he, I think he identifies strongly as like AAPI, but he is half white. Um, okay. The guy that took over his role on Riverdale, uh, Charles Melton, also half white. The uh-huh. guy that plays the Asian doctor on um, Grey's Anatomy, I think he's like half Italian, uh, half Italian. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I was thinking about it because I was like, oh, you know, I, maybe maybe uh, Asian American actors are too short. Is that the thing? Because I was like, <laughs> no, all these guys, all these guys are very tall. Like it, Ross Butler had no business being on 13 Reasons Why because he's like an Asian dude that's fully six inches taller than any of these other white people playing teenagers. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is pretty huge. I, I, I don't think it's because he's... <laughs> tall well that's why but that's why i wonder where the acceptability happens of like well you're you're um you're a hapa actor that presents asian right because on the on the flip side of this on the flip side of hapa actors that present asian 
there's also like Hapa actors that don't present Asian. Like, um, like I know I didn't know until like probably the last decade that Mark Paul Gossler is half Asian. Mm. Mm-hmm. He spent so many of those years as like blonde Zach Morris. And then you realize like after that show was done that his hair is like dark. Mm-hmm. And then you, you're like, oh, his mo- I think his mother is like Thai or mm-hmm. Indonesian. Mm-hmm. Do you know who Chloe Bennett is? I feel like I know the name. Chloe Bennett. She was on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She oh, is yeah. in the yeah. upcoming Powerpuff Girls TV series. She's half Asian. Through her dad's side. So like I, I find this story kind of touching because she, you know... Her, her her given name is Chloe Wong, Chloe Wang, Chloe Wang mm-hmm. or Wong. It's mm-hmm. an A, but um, her when she started her career, since she doesn't necessarily present as Asian, she presents mm-hmm. as like ambiguously multi ethnic. Um, I think it was suggested to her that she not use her her given name, mm-hmm. and so what she decided to do was that she didn't want to like kind of remove her father from her identity. Mm-hmm. So she took on his first name as her stage's last name, basically. So Bennett is her father's first oh. name. I just anyway. Googled her and I'm like, she was with Jake Paul or Logan Paul. Not anymore. They broke up. I think they, I think they, but she was, she, I remember she was judgment. always on, she was always on his Instagram stories, but don't let that color your, um, Oh sure. Perce- I won't. Perception of who she is as a person. <laughs> but that whole discussion of like asian american pacific islander visibility Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what parts of our community we get to see in entertainment i think that also extends into the music industry like by and large like when i was collecting up i don't know playlists of asian american artists that i was familiar with um asian american artists that i feel had some kind of chance to kind of hit it big or maybe mm-hmm. they had hit it big in some way. Like the vast majority of them are um, like Hoppe. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the artist that we're talking about today, Rachel Yamagata, she's half Japanese. Um, but yeah, like by and large, I was thinking of like um, A. Marie, half Korean, uh, Khalees, who's half Chinese, um, Anderson Pack, half Korean. Um, there were a bunch of people that I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that like, you know, um, Haley Steinfeld. I feel like you have a better, I don't, maybe better is not the right word, but, um, you know, there's, there's like half white and there's half black. Right. And I think that like those get, they, they get sort of accepted in different ways or like you get shunted into different paths because the artists that you mentioned who are like Amory, Anderson Pack, Khalees, they all go down the R&B hip hop road. Like that's not it's not as much a thing in like the pop side, right? And on the mm-hmm. pop side, you really don't see as much of the mixture. I mean, you know, I know you mentioned Haley Steinfeld, but I've like never it, I've and I've actually like the thing is like I've heard like Amory talk a lot about her upbringing on the Korean side of her family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Anderson Pack he also talks about like you know the Korean side of his his upbringing. Um, Haley Steinfeld, I didn't I didn't even know. Yeah. I don't think I ever heard her really talk about it. You know, um, Vanessa Hudgens. I always forget that she's mixed. I mean, she talks, I think she's, she talks occasionally about being Filipino. Darren Chris, Darren Mm. Chris talks pretty frequently actually about being half Filipino. I think he talks about it a lot because he recognizes that he is like white passing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think he sees the importance of like bringing it up, like actually like a full half of my upbringing is like Filipino. Mm-hmm. Cause mm-hmm. I, I think I've seen pictures of like Darren, Chris's brother and Darren, Chris's brother is like the Asian passing version of Darren, mm-hmm. Chris. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, you know, who? Cassie, Cassie Ventura. Oh, Cassie. Filipino. Yeah. Uh, her H E R. I love her. Olivia love- Rodrigo. Mm-hmm. L King, L King, lest we forget that L King's father is Rob Schneider, noted. I know. Noted half Filipino. I know. I just saw him in a movie, uh, The Wrong Missy, if you see it on Netflix. Okay. I, I just remember, like, Rob Schneider is one of those people that, like, you know, not, not Asian presenting, but he always made a point in his movies to have, like, some reference to his Filipino heritage. Like, mm-hmm. there was a random movie where, like, a Bibinka shows up, like, just yeah, like yeah, yeah. In a scene, and yeah. I was like, "Oh, that's." He's kinda... always in. He was always in like those movies with the Filipino actors too. So like, there was Surf Ninjas, <laughs> way back in the day, and the uh, classic Surf Ninjas. <laughs> but I mean, that's how I really knew him from. I mean, it's he kind of he's a little controversial now. Noted but, conservative. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, it, it's yeah, it's one of them. Yeah, El King, his daughter, which El King, I his was daughter. kind of fl- I was floored by. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, very strange. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh Nora Jones also on my short list. Mm-hmm. Uh Karen O. Well. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, and then I was like, I was going through like, okay, there's also bands. Like there's bands like Smashing Pumpkins, like James Eha. Right? Well, there's that new little band. There's that that new band, the Linda Linda or Linda Linda Linda. Linda Linda's. Um, I mean, you know, they haven't had a chance yet. I guess I they've know. had as much of a chance. They've as been on all Robert. kinds of things lately. I've been, you know, they're really cute. I like them. <laughs> you know, full disclosure, like I know the guy, I know, I know one of the girl's dads. Mm-hmm. Circling back to the very beginning of our conversation almost a half hour ago. Mm-hmm. Um, when I decided to stop going to school and just go do my internship. My internship was with Giant Robot Magazine and the editor, one of the founders and editors of Giant Robot Magazine at the time, like it's his daughter that's in the Linda Lindas. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were, you were at Giant Robot when I met you. I was so cool. I was so hip. I had like my finger on the pulse. You did. What happened? And what happened? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there, so yeah, there was like, I was thinking like, oh, there's actually like all this whole other subset of like band members, you know, uh, Tony Canal from uh, No Doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, so I, I was gonna, almost going to do this other band from the 90s, a band called Moonpoles and Caterpillars. What? So there's a band called Moonpoles and Caterpillars. There's a song in the playlist this week. Um, and you, occasionally you would hear this song in like a VW commercial in the 90s, mm. a song called Here. And I had already bought this album. Like I bought this album at Tower Records a hundred percent unheard. Like I'd never heard of this band. I'd never heard any of their music, but the cover art was almost, it was like a Ren and Stimpy esque illustration that I just liked so much. That is that like, the lucky I, dumpling one? Yes. Lucky dumpling. That's so cute. Yeah. And then I think I looked at the cover. I was like, Oh, this is cool. It's like a Ren and Stimpy, John Chris Felusi type of illustration. illustration and yeah. I flipped it over. And then the, the pictures of the band, it's like, Oh, like, the band members in this band are Filipino. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like Asian faces, Asian faces. I'll just, I'll buy it. It's Asian faces, you know? Um, and then, you know, they came out with this really great um, alternative rock album in 1995. So they were on my short list. I decided not to, because there's very little information about them out there. They had this like one kind of semi-licensable hit and then 
They kept going, but you really can't find much information about them. Except that they're from Glendale, which is very close to where we are right now. Yeah. Jason, we wait. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just realizing that we've wasted so much time. I just I just wanted to get through my list of like, here's all of the contenders. All well, the contenders. I, think, I think here's the thing. It's just that it's like... Like with anything else, it's far and few between. You have to like pick through and be like, oh, yeah. the half the half Asian is my, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's just like it. It's really hard to find. So um, that's why you know when I did first hear Rachel Yamagata, it re- she really the name really stuck with me because it is fully a Japanese American name. You f- you you see the name and you click it. That's that's the story of my life. You see an Asian <laughs> face, you click it. You see an Asian name, you click it. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. my Asian America. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess before we get into it, mm-hmm. we just want to re- remind everyone they can check us out at flopredeemer.com. Um, check us out on social at flopredeemer um, on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. And, you know, as always, please send us your tips and, and uh, artist recommendations to flopredeemer at gmail.com. Um, we're going through those now, and I'm looking forward to talking about Khalees, uh soon because of a listener suggestion. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's been really it's been really great to dig into her. Khalees noted half Chinese. Is it like Chinese Puerto Rican? She's Chinese Puerto Rican on her okay. mom's side, so she's more like a quarter maybe. But I don't know. But is that okay? So like, is that meaning that like she is is her mother? I mean, we can get into it when you actually talk about it. But I want you to find out. Dig in, d- d- go to ancestry.com or something. Get, really her, talk get her 23 in me because, you know, is is Chinese Puerto Rican meaning that like her mother was fully ethnically Chinese, but f- like born and raised in Puerto oh, Rico? Or, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Because it's like, is it like Nicole, uh, what her name Campbell and her mom's like Chinese Jamaican? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but then I don't know. What does that mean? Yeah, because I have a portion of my dad's side of the family somehow ended up in Mexico. Mm. So I have a, a portion of my family that is Japanese Mexican, but they're fully ethnically Japanese. They just mm. have been born and raised in Mexico for well, like three or four generations. That's kind of like the Japanese Peruvians too. Yes. Like yes. the the president of Peru at one point was like fully like a Japanese looking man, right? Like like fully ethnically Japanese, but like So yeah, dig into Kalisa's twenty yeah. three and me results. I will. I, want, I will. I I'm 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 digging through her recipes. I'm like <laughs> living I'm living for her farm life. So okay, right. when we come back we'll talk about Rachel Yamagata. All right, we're back. Um, today I'm talking about the singer-songwriter Rachel Yamagata um, and her 2003-2004 song, Worn Me Down. So who is Rachel Yamagata? Rachel Yamagata is a singer-songwriter. She was born to a Japanese-American father and an Italian-German mother. She's a Vassar gal. Mm-hmm. I just I, Anytime someone goes to Vassar or has attended Vassar, I have to say she's a Vassar gal because that is a line from the Christina Applegate film, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Do you say that when, when, when we talk about Adam? Yeah. I always call Adam a Vassar right, gal. A Vassar I'm gal. like, oh, Adam's a Vassar gal. I think the reference goes over his head. Oh, <laughs> you have to watch Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead starring Christina Applegate. 
Excellent film. Um, so according, yeah, according to Wikipedia, she attended Northwestern University as well as Vassar College. Um, she releases her first solo EP in 2003 and makes her major label debut in 2004 with the album Happenstance, released on RCA Victor. Um, the songs from her debut make frequent appearances on film and TV soundtracks, with songs heard in such classics as One Tree Hill, Smallville, The O.C., Monster-in-Law, and of course, our personal favorite, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Hmm. Oh, do you yes. remember this? Uh, I re- Yes, I do. Well, you remember watching the movie. Do you remember a Rachel Yamagata song featuring no, prominently? No, I don't. Okay. No, I just remember us finishing a bottle of, a jug, literally, of Carlo Rossi wine. Yeah. And really all, all of us crying at the end of uh, that movie. So Back good. in those classy days when we, like those big, it was like the round pumpkin-shaped yep. jug of mm-hmm. Carlo Rossi wine. We used Bottom to buy shelf. That. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, her song, B, B, oh God, what the fuck is that song called? <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it didn't. It's not in your script here. I don't know. I know. I know. <laughs> BB? No, it's, uh, God. Forget it. It doesn't matter. It's that uh, BB your love song. You know, so her, so her music gets licensed pretty frequently in the year that that first album is released. But despite this veritable licensing blitzkrieg, the mm. album peaks at number 17 on the Heat Seekers albums chart. And I think we've talked a lot about the bubbling under chart for singles. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the Heat Seekers album chart is the equivalent for albums. So they have oh, the I Billboard see. 200, mm-hmm. the top 200 album, and then you have your Heat Seekers, which are like, you know, maybe about to break. Through. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. number 17 possibly means number 217. Oof. And it peaks there. Um, and the song that we're talking about today, Warn Me Down, it peaks at number 33 on the adult top 40 airplay charts, which I actually was like, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, that's, I was looking, yeah. I was looking it up and the song Warn Me Down, which is actually, okay, the song Warn Me Down, Elephant in the Room, the song Warn Me Down, I think is actually her biggest hit. Yes. It's so the one I know. We would be remiss to not point that out because the concept of this show is that the songs we talk about are flops. However... <laughs> I think overall, like the fact that like there was a lot of hype building up Rachel Yamagata and she was making this major label debut. I think it was a big deal. And then these songs were everywhere in film and television, Mm -hmm. but it did not make the impact that I think people thought it was going to make. I think that her number 33 chart placement on the adult top 40 airplay charts, I think it was aided a lot by the fact that this was a song that was played frequently on like college radio Mm. or like NPR type stations because on the um on the triple A charts, um, which I think encompasses like college radio, this song actually charts at like number four. So there was a whole niche of people that were like taking a lot of interest in this song, myself included. How how is it that Warn Me Down is not in her t- top ten most popular on Spotify? Oh, so in her latter days, in her more recent days. I've discovered that Rachel Yamagata has had this big impact in like Korea. Like hmm. a lot of her, her songs that like failed to chart here were like number ones charting songs in Korea. And so I was looking through, yeah, like a lot of her like quote unquote most popular songs on Spotify, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever the algorithm is doing there. I don't know. Cause it's not always the songs with the most number of streams. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's, it's time. Just, it's yeah. like time-based and numbered based. Don't ask me. Not in, not a math. I mean, it never, it never made, I mean, you know, yeah. 
I, it's, I, it, I the number one song sometimes doesn't have the most. Yeah, we've actual come up with that before. Yeah, but um, a lot of her more recent songs have been created for like K dramas. I think. Hmm. So she's getting, you know, and if oh. you look on Spotify at like the number one countries that are listening to her, they're all in, they're all Asian Asian cities. Interesting. So that's how far an Asian name will take you, I think. Just saying. Even to Korea. <laughs> yeah, in Asia, I don't know. I mean, that's surprising, right? A Japanese name. Yeah. Because <laughs> who was it? Into, who not going to get into the geopolitics of that. No, yeah, curious. no. Because who was it that um. What's his face? Uh, the guy from Portlandia. Wait. Oh my gosh. Fred Armisen? Fred Armisen, half Korean. Did you ever did you ever see his heritage? Like he had that like family tree show on PBS, or he was a he oh, was the, featured the, on that. The, my, the answer, Who do you think you are? Yeah. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't realize he was. Oh no, so he he has grown up being like, oh, you know, his father was um or not his father, his grandfather, because he's uh, Fred Armisen's like a quarter Asian. He was mm-hmm. like, his grandfather was Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so he's grown up his whole life being a quarter Japanese. He finds out through this show that his grandfather was actually Korean. Mm. His, his, his Korean grandfather, in order to adapt to life as an entertainer in Japan pre-World War II, adopted a Japanese name. Oh, Adopted a Japanese name then during World War II was like a, like a, not whatever the Nazi equivalent of the USO is. He was like an entertainer for German Nazi troops. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, wow. I think that's how, don't, don't quote me on that. But he was, you know, because he was allied, he was allied with Japan. Yeah, yeah, with Japan. Yeah, the Imperial. uh, Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, um, but we're not here to talk about the geopolitical things no. between japan and korea korea so she's so she so she's got all of this she's you she's know got, it's, she's it's got all of this hype taking off doesn't take off at the end of the happenstance era for her with rca victor she parts way with she parts ways with rca victor um in 2007 in what seems like an unlikely pairing she goes on tour with mandy moore interesting with whom she co-writes the song Lady's Choice for Mandy Moore's 2007 album Wild Hope. Do you remember this? I don't. I just follow Mandy Moore's uh, real estate holdings. Oh, okay. I mean, so Mandy Moore, right, um, makes her debut as like one of the bubblegum pop princesses, right? Mm -hmm. Pop, what's below a princess? A a duchess? No. Yes. A lady? She's a lady. She's a (laughs) pop. She's a bubblegum pop lady. <laughs> She's a pop lady in waiting. <laughs> she definitely a lady in waiting. Um, I was reading about how Mandy Moore, that whole time that, you know, she was discovered by like a FedEx delivery person. That's she was like, weird. She was singing maybe at her house and the FedEx delivery guy heard her singing and the FedEx delivery guy had a contact at Epic Records and told someone at Epic that they should give her a shot. And so they did. And this is, you know, Mandy Moore, who I think never had aspirations to become like a pop singer. She always had like these like folksy 70s mm-hmm. vibes to her. So she's like a 15 year old. She gets signed by this major label. Britney Spears is real hot. She starts this pop career. She's doing the song Candy. She says she like always hated that music. She oh, never yeah, thought yeah. it was good. Um, she's so bad at dancing, which is like part of you know, being a pop mm-hmm. lady and waiting, you need to dance, right? It's all because, yeah. 
It will reportedly, she's so bad at dancing that her label tells her to stop. (laughs) And after, you know, a couple of pop albums, Mandy Moore moves, she kind of evolves away from that. She releases her album coverage, which she covers all of these like wide ranging songs from like, you know, eras past. And then she comes out with Wild Hope in 2007, which is like kind of a folksy singer songwritery album. And Rachel Yamagata, you know, has a song on there called Lady's Choice. And Mm -hmm. in the subsequent year, Rachel Yamagata goes on tour with Mandy Moore. And so I always thought that was interesting. I think that that was the beginning of Mandy Moore kind of like reinventing herself or perhaps like stripping away the artifice of the pop persona that had been kind of like, you know, applied to her exterior like stucco. Mm -hmm. You know, she was revealing the wood siding underneath the stucco. Um, She was having her folklore moment. Yes. Yes. Completely. Uh, Rachel Yamagata, she ends up parting ways with RCA Victor, and then she moves over to Warner Records to release 2008's Elephants, Teeth Sinking Into Heart. Which, um, you know, there was one song on that album called Duet. I think Ray LaMontagne was on that song. I should really do research before we record this show. I think it was Ray LaMontagne. That song, I remember it being on, like, So You Think You Can Dance. Um, It was also featured in, like, Grey's Anatomy. Was it, like, one of those, you know, where they did the really emotional modern dance and they... Listen to this. I mean, it's a a real spare song, very emotional. I I think it is one of those... um, what did they call it on So You Think You Can Dance where they just do the flailing and running dances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, I'm like, and then huh? the girl and then the girl jumps up into the guy's arms and she mm-hmm. tucks in her knees and then he spins her around, you know. Mm-hmm. And then that he, thing. puts her on the ground and she's like, yeah. head on her, hand on her Contemporary. Head. The contemporary yeah. dancers. This is the elephant song? Uh, no. Uh, oh, Elephant is a great song. I can, I can give you my whole laundry list of uh, Rachel Yamagata songs that I love. But the song that was featured very prominently, I think they licensed it out quite a bit, was the song Duet. Okay. Takes a little bit to take off, but once it gets to like the meat of it, you'll recognize the tune. So this song or this album, Elephants Teeth Sinking Into Heart, you know, it has a similar kind of reception as her first album. I think it's very critically uh, lauded, but it doesn't have like the level of commercial success that maybe you need in order to sustain a major label status. Right. Yeah. And so after Elephant. God, I, this album title. After Elephant's Teeth Sinking Into Heart, she parts weight with Warner Records, and then thereafter, she opts to release her music independently. And after that, I remember she started funding the production of her albums through a crowdfunding site called Pledge Music. And so her subsequent albums, 2011's Chesapeake and 2016's Tightrope Walker, were both released independently via this uh, method. Yeah. That sounds hard, <laughs> especially then, right? Like, I mean, now I think, you know, you with social, I think we're used to sort of supporting our artists directly. But like in what, 2011, when yeah. that was, I mean, it's just like, geez, how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, I was reading interviews with her where she talks about, you know, stepping away from like major labels and basically opting to crowdfund her albums and then releasing them independently. And one of the things that she actually said that made sense to me was that, um, well, when she did Chesapeake in 2011, like that's based on where she was living. So she had got a house in like Woodstock, New York, Mm. and she actually had a studio in her house and she was recording there. And she was like, 
it was nice to be independent and not have to worry about studio time. Because mm. you that could that's, just do whatever you need to do. You could do. just do whatever you want at whatever time of day for as yeah. long as you want it. And I, mm-hmm. I never really thought about that. But I guess for most major label artists, like if you're recording in a professional studio, your label or you are paying for the time to be there. So yeah. if and you have to write a song in two hours, you got to write a song in two hours. And whatever it is at the end of that is what it is, right? Yeah. But, you know, she expressed that like, yeah, it, you know, she had to figure this all out, right? I think that we talked about Maya when Maya went independent and her figuring out the process of like, okay, like how do I do this on my own? Mm-hmm. Rachel Yamagata has a very similar arc of once she goes independent, figuring out how to do this on her own, getting her own setup, getting, um, you know, her own yeah. avenues to basically record, release, and promote her music. Um, you know, she goes without a manager for something like four years in that period where she doesn't rely on a manager to book her gigs or do anything like she's doing it herself. And I think that's reflective in like the scope of the things that she was doing. Like she was doing pretty small tours yeah, at that time. Um, and, uh, but yeah, she really made it work for herself. And I think it was like to the benefit maybe of her creative process. Was that when you saw her? Like, was it during that time or was it in the prior days? Okay. So, Sorry, am I just skipping ahead? Sorry. No, that's a that's a perfect segue into the <laughs> second bullet point of my script. Forty eight minutes in, second <laughs> bullet point of my script. How did I get into Rachel Yamagata? So, I first heard Rachel Yamagata in two thousand three when the song "Worn Me Down" came out, and this is back in the days when I had a blog, mm. and um, in two thousand three. The, the landscape of blogs was like, there were like diary land blogs. There were live journals. <laughs> yes. I want to say that Zanga was starting out. Uh-huh. All these things that, well, the live journal still exists, right? Diary yeah, land, yeah. I think, is gone. Zanga is definitely gone. Zanga is gone because we all had to archive our shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know where that is now. But I had a I had like a fully hosted blog. Like, I think I started my blog in like 19... 19- 99 not gonna mention it by name don't say it jason i'm not i'm not gonna say mine i know don't 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 look for it maybe people could probably find it it's fine um i don't know if it's it might it's probably hosted somewhere anyway it's embarrassing because it was 1999 i was in college it's fine but you know i had this blog (laughs) and back in those days like we would just blog stuff and then you would find other bloggers so for me it was like a lot of other gay bloggers out out in the world and then you would like link off to their blog and they would link to your blog and you'd comment on each other's blogs Mm -hmm. but one of the things that um a lot of the bloggers that i followed would constantly post music and um so i saw the song worn me down posted on a blog that i followed in 2003 and like i said in the opening i see an asian name i see an asian face anything i click on it so i did I clicked Mm -hmm. on her face and I got this song. It was the 2003 version of Worn Me Down. And there's two different versions of this song. And that'll become an issue later. The 2003 version, which was released on her first EP, I downloaded it off of this site, off of this blog. Because that's the other thing that I was recalling is like back in the day, we couldn't embed media like the way that people are, this is like pre YouTube. Oh yeah, you had to like just post a link to it. Yeah, you would upload the file to a server yeah, and then uh-huh. just post a link to it, and everyone would have to download music or download videos. Which is why everyone had viruses all the time. All the time, we all had viruses. It was like you know, 
the 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 unseen epidemic of like blogging Mm -hmm. prior to youtube but so that's how i first got into this song and it 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 did not hurt that Mm -hmm. in 2003 how old was i 23 young 23 year old like the guy that posted the song on his blog was exceptionally attractive (laughs) that's always what happens that was like okay yeah sure yeah yeah you're you're hot i trust you yeah um you know post this song i see a I see a japanese name not just an asian name japanese name gotta click it gotta click clearly it. he's on your side and it, the song really got me i think that um when i was talking about carly ray jepson i talked about like songs that i kind of sublimate into like a gay reading mm. this is one of those songs wore me down because oh. it's a song about um a woman that's fed up with this man that she's with being obsessed with a woman that he used to be with that his current lover is not. Mm. And so take that, take, take Worn away me from that. down word. like a road. Yeah. Is that a good lyric? I don't, I, to this day, I don't, I don't know. know if that's a good it's, lyric. You know what it is? You know what it is for me? It's, it's more the delivery. And I think when I first heard this song by Rachel Yamagata, I was not, I told you I grew up in Hawaii and I, you know, there's and then just generally speaking there's a dearth of asian american representation in media i think what i was primed for when i when i think of an asian person is is more like r&b like because i think of like filipino singers or even hawaiian singers like the the, what they tend to go into is like r&b soul music like that's Mm. kind of like where you jocelyn enriquez yeah well San Francisco not Bay soul. Area. I was like, that's not Filipino soul, but I, yes, 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 for sure. Do you remember um, jo- Jocelyn Enriquez? I forgot about like Pinai. Did you ever listen yes, to Pinai? Yes. And um, Kai? <laughs> Kai. Oh my God. I think Kai came to my high school and performed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Kai. Filipino like musician, pop music, uh, like pop R&B musicians. Just but that's what I mean. Like, in San I think of them the as being much more R&B. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, because that was my exposure. And, and, you know, when we do talent shows, it was like, that was what people did. It was either that or it was like punk. Right. Um, because it was like late nineties, early two thousands. So when I heard the Rachel Yamagata song, what was really interesting to me was like, she was singing in, in what I can only describe as like white, Like she sounded <laughs> like a white lady. Like it was like a Sarah McLaughlin type of like little fair. Oh, how like, dare you! I know, I but you Fiona know, Fiona Apple maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I don't but mean also that like, in like a, a disparaging like a, way. Like a seventy-year-old smoking white woman. Yeah, and but I think that's what that's what kind of hooked me, honestly, okay. because it, I didn't mean that in a disparaging way. It's <laughs> just that it's that like the way they kind of like their voices catch, and it's I don't know. It's not a yodel, but it's not like a. It's very singer songwritery. Um, and it's not something that I had associated with Asian American artists yeah. at all. And so, um, and, and then certainly not for it then to be like on all the CW shows or whatever, you know, like that mm-hmm. was just kind of amazing. Um, again, going back to this idea that like I had wanted to be a lot of things, an actor, a singer or whatever. And since I didn't see myself when I did, it was in, it was still in like, it like it might've been an entertainment, but it was like in the channels that you were, that you knew accepted people of color, which is why like soul, you know, R&B, like generally speaking, like I, I never saw a pop career for myself, if that makes sense. Um, so seeing her like that was really interesting. Um, surprising, honestly. <laughs> 
So after like initially discovering this song in 2003, she gets her major label debut in 2004 and she goes on like a tour. And one mm-hmm. part of that tour was a residency at the Hotel Cafe yeah. here in Los Angeles. There's actually a full video of her re- rehearsing at the Hotel Cafe in 2004 on YouTube. It's really, really fascinating. Um, but at the time, me and um, our friend Aaron, we went to the Hotel Cafe to see her. And from that point onward, like I was so hooked on seeing her live because there's something so disarming about her live performances. They're so, they're, they're like, there's a dichotomy between being like so raw and so emotional, but then like being really humorous and self-deprecating and very Mm -hmm. charming. And she has these aspects of her personality that she brings forward in her live performances. And so I think on every album tour that she's gone on, like I've gone to go see her, but that said, like she never, she definitely never advanced beyond the point of like, you know, she was doing these really successful residencies at the hotel cafe, but we've talked about this in the past that the hotel cafe is like the smallest of small venues. Yeah. So you get maybe a hundred people in there and it's packed. And, you know, she was doing these residencies where she could do four, I think she would do like four weekends in a row at the hotel cafe and like just sell out. But like, even in her last album tour, I went to go see her and she played at the Moroccan lounge and this would have been 2016, 2017, Mm -hmm. I think. Anyway, she played at the Moroccan lounge, which also is not a very large venue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all this time, like she's just been continuously working, but never like growing very far beyond like a core dedicated audience that I feel like Like always goes out to support her. Yeah. Yeah. By and large, this is actually one of her more pop forward i think pop palatable songs mm-hmm. a lot of her stuff gets like way out there way yeah like the, the one song you were talking about is like nine minutes long like it's yeah so rachel yamagata she's like not uncomfortable presenting like a lot of her idiosyncrasies right mm-hmm. and i think that that's one of the main reasons why her career never really took off beyond the few appearances that she made was that she didn't necessarily have the makings of uh, a major label pop superstar. Mm -hmm. I think very admittedly for herself, like she talks about album by album, song by song, just kind of going wherever the muse takes you. And I think that what we've learned in doing research for this show is that the music industry, the major label music industry is a business. And it's all about marketing. It's about optics. It's about timing. It's about key selling points. It's, it's not about, it's not necessarily about great art. Yeah. And if you're an artist that's focused on creating great things, but maybe not so focused on getting it into as many ears as possible, you know, maybe that's not the path for you. And I don't Mm. think that it was the path for her because again, her music is, eclectic so in that regard like when i was trying to describe her i have a hard time even describing what genre of music she's making Mm -hmm. because it kind of evolves over time even within the album like there's different elements being brought in or there's different production qualities being being brought in so you know to describe someone as a singer songwriter it sounds very broad but it's really like the best i could do because i didn't want to be like oh she's like alternative or she's a folk folk singer you know like it, it she really covers a lot of ground 
Yeah. Without being without being um, unfocused is the strange part to me. Like I see the through line between all of her music, and I think in terms of like the songs that she writes, like they all have a through line to them. You know, I remember that when we first saw her, and she was talking a lot about struggles that she had been going through in order to get this album put out through her label. And she said this like fully in front of someone from her label. She's like, oh, that guy over there, he's from my label, but you know, I'm going to say it anyway, because the original title that she wanted to have for this album was, um, oh, geez. (laughs) So like, so for example, the original title of the album happenstance was the never can be dot, dot, dot happenstance. But there was pushback from her label that was like, you can't call your album the never can be dot, dot, dot happenstance. And so the title was truncated to happenstance, except when you, I guess the one battle that she had won, and I think this is something I learned at that concert was she she was like, but the one place they let me have it is on the CD, like on the actual disc itself. It has the full title as it was intended to be, but on the packaging and in the marketing, the album was only called Happenstance. happenstance, much to her chagrin. And then the other thing that I remember from this period of time is that she has one song on the album that is like upbeat and happy. It's a song called 1963. And I swear every time that I saw her perform it, I think only in those first two album cycles, she performed it. She brought up the fact that like, it was a song that she hated and that she did not want to write. And that her label basically said, you can't have a, you can't have an album full of this depressing shit. It's almost like it's it is funny though, you know, because because we talk about this all the time with these artists, and particularly I want to say, kind of particularly RCA. RCA has come up multiple (laughs) times with this sort of thing where they're fighting with their female artists about what you know the direction they want their album to go in and their art. But it is kind of it's just like that's that's always the the case. And and it does make you wonder, like, why did you sign them? Yeah, no, it's 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 totally that because I think to take Rachel Yamagata's vision for that album, to take the remainder of the songs, aside from that one really, really happy, upbeat song that appears like smack dab in the middle of the album, mm-hmm. you know, it really kind of breaks the flow. And after she said that, I listened back to the song and I was like, oh yeah, like this song is so strange. So taking it back to uh, RCA, I wonder if like <laughs> Christina Aguilera and her experiments with like 500 track song uh, albums, um, and just going in all directions, like they were like, okay, Christina took all of that will from us, like so none of our other artists can do that. Straight and narrow for the rest of the RC yeah, artists. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that even back then, I felt like I was witnessing the struggles of like someone who just had a particular vision for herself and was having to kind of conform to a marketing agenda. I can see that. There are two versions of this song. There is a version of the song that was released as part of her EP in 2003. That's the song. That's the version of the song that I really enjoy. And mm-hmm. then this song was re-recorded and reproduced for her 2004 full-length album Happenstance, and. In the process of reworking the song into for 2004 major label release, I felt like the whole sound of her music had changed. 
that whole mm-hmm. album happenstance it didn't it didn't sonically represent like what I thought her music should actually sound like. Uh, you know, that's really interesting you say that because when I knew you were going to do Rachel Yamagata, I, I, you know, I was like, I know Worn Me Down. So I clicked on that, the EP version. Mm-hmm. And it does sound more raw. Like the production is just, it's, it's crunchier for, I mean, it's, it's just, it, you know what I mean? It's, it feels more like, because by the time you get to 2004 the 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 album version the happenstance version it is it is that early 2000s sanded down quote unquote alternative like there's all those in the background <laughs> like the weird guitar you know like it it sounds like it's trying to be for tv if that makes sense it's it's just so it's so polished. And yeah, I think that that was yeah. one thing. It takes so away this from is, it. So this is, and this is one thing that like, for me, so for me, as someone who had been going to see her live in concert and getting really familiar with how good of a live performer she is, mm-hmm. how raw she is as a live performer, how she really like brings you into herself, right? Mm-hmm. None of that to me was ever truly captured in the full length album in the way that I felt like it maybe was in that initial EP. Again, to your point, like there's, there's a little bit of like a low finest to mm-hmm. that, that EP that is sanded down in the album. And I was looking into like what happened between 2003 and 2004. And so when she produced the EP in 2003, she was working with a producer named Malcolm Byrne. And Malcolm Byrne is a Canadian producer who was coming off of a Grammy win in the year 2000 for producing Emmylou Harris's 2000 album, Red Dirt Woman. I remember that Emmylou Harris album getting a lot of buzz and critical acclaim because it, to me, it captured something that felt like you were in the room. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny that there there's actually like, I think there's actually a level of artifice to capturing a quote unquote genuine feeling experience when it comes to music production. Mm-hmm. It's not like anything ever gets recorded to these tracks as is. And that's what you're hearing, right? Like they're always yeah. doing something to it to achieve a particular result. And that Emmylou Harris album, I was listening to it this week, just through and through, there's a feeling of like being there. Yeah. And there's a grittiness to it. There's almost like a, um, and not unrehearsed feeling to it, but like there's a feeling of like whatever happens happened. Well, it's a, and it's intimacy, and it's it's feels authentic in in a way that it was like this is the true. It's like when you're watching a video, like a YouTube video of your favorite singer, kind of just doing their their song, like in mm-hmm. a, you know in an intimate setting. Um, yeah, that is interesting because because it. I mean, I I hadn't looked into him, but that makes so much sense, and 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 you can hear it in the album. And you're right; it's a completely different feel by the time you get to the actual album. Yeah, it is that sanitized. It's like weirdly sanitized in a way. Yeah, and I think that like so when she goes to do happenstance, um, she teams up with the producer John Alasia, mm-hmm. and she's. She becomes like a frequent collaborator with John Alicia, but John Alicia had been working with like Dave Matthews Band, mm. uh, Jason Mraz. Mm-hmm. He did some albums for Ben Folds. And then he'd also, I mean, he had his big success 
with um, John Mayer's debut album Room for Squares in 1999. Wow. So that's kind of like the that's kind of like the bookends of like the people that she was working with for me is like um, Malcolm Byrne doing Emmy Lou Harris's album in 2000, and then John Alasia doing John Mayer's album in 1999, which I think were you know two different reads on where Rachel Yamagata's music could really go. Yeah. No, I agree. I, cause, cause now you mentioned, you mentioned those and I'm like, okay, I see. And it's, and it's funny because I like very specific songs from each of those artists. Mm-hmm. Like, especially at that time, I don't like the whole oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think of it as like music for like riding on a tour bus through Kansas. Like that's what I visualize. It's like, it's a very flat almost. And like, well, the, the expansive, other th- flat and expansive. Like, yeah. Right. I mean, the other thing, the other thing that I kind of read into that production style, the stuff that you get from like Dave Matthews band studio albums, or like a John Mayer studio album, is it almost has like a musician's, like a musician's appreciation for sound. Like you want to be really precious about every sound where it's like, oh, I'm going to mic the drums in a very particular way. And I'm going to mic the piano in a very particular way because I want the audio quality of all of the instruments to be impeccable. Mm-hmm. So even if it is a live performance, even if it has authenticity to it on the production level, you're taking such care of every single track that I think that that's almost what sanitizes it. Yeah. Cause when you're in a, when you're in a concert hall or when you're in a venue hearing music played live, you're never hearing anything at perfect levels. You're never hearing anything really you know evened out in the way yeah, that cause I you're because it depends on like where you're standing and exactly. what's going on you know at the time and what i appreciate about the malcolm Byrne versions of some of these songs on the ep is that it'll be that thing where it almost sounds like when you're hearing the piano the piano was picked up by her vocal mic like the piano sounds a little bit distant and a little bit tinny and a little bit echoey because it just sounds like the mic wasn't quite picking it up right mm-hmm. versus like everything that was done for happenstance everything is just so perfect and yeah. i i think that in the process of making it perfect the texture of it's lost and i think that that's something like exactly what you're describing is something that the casual listener doesn't realize like we register that mm-hmm. something's off, but we don't put it together that it's like, yeah, it's the imperfections of a live performance that like, you know, that make it quote unquote live that, that draw you in that that's all part of the experience. And then you don't, you're just like, Oh, it just sounds different when, you know, when you listen to the album version or whatever. And yeah, it's, it's, it is all of those things. It's almost like you have to plan to be less precise, you know, uh, yeah. Or, or to, yeah, to, to not like hermetically seal the thing. So that's why for me, it was like really interesting to have these two versions of this song for me as a listener to just listen to them back to back and be like, okay, like what exactly is the difference here uh, mm-hmm. in what I'm hearing? And what, how do those things translate to me as like a casual listener? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, we, we don't often get that opportunity so to listen to think, things side by side. Do you think that she would have had a better shot if it had been the Malcolm Burns uh, version that had been right or released? Or do you think that would have 
maybe kept her music more sonically authentic to like who she was, but like she still wasn't destined for major label stardom. Um, okay. I, I think that the, I think that the Malcolm Byrne version of warm me down is by far the superior version. I don't know that it would have garnered more success. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a lot of what ifs, right? Yeah. I think that the thing is that, you know, I, when you, when you have these like indie breakthroughs, of artists that have a song that kind of takes off. I'm thinking about the one year that we only heard that one Gautier song, right? Somebody or that we, used to know. That one, that one year that Hozier had one big song, right? Like, uh -huh. I feel like occasionally there are these indie alternative songs that break through in a big way. And maybe it makes those artists a one-hit wonder, but it's a song that becomes so, like... Um, ubiquitous. I don't think that the happenstance version of Warm Me Down had the qualities of yeah. that. I think that the EP version had something unique to it that could have taken it that extra mile. Like mm -hmm. if you heard the EP version of Warm Me Down on One Tree Hill, that it had a patina <laughs> of coolness, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, mm -hmm. that the album version did not. Yeah, I can see that. But nonetheless, and I, I, I think that this is a this is an aspect to Rachel Yamagata's albums that has followed her even into her independent releases or like through after her RCA days into her Warner records days and then into her independent releasing days. Cause the sound of her music, I think it's always sought to figure out like, how do we give, how do we create like the, the most raw, most genuine feeling version of these songs that can kind of match the energy that she's giving in live performances it really does come down to the production and the engineering it's like and you know you wonder about your access as a as an independent artist like like just to, to work with the people who truly get it yeah i mean it's it's interesting because when she does after happenstance when she moves to warner and she does the album elephants teeth sinking into heart which by the way I always wondered, like, is elephants dot, 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 teeth sinking into heart? Is that like the big, like, victory moment for her because she <laughs> couldn't name that. her first album the never can be dot, dot, dot happenstance? Like, mm -hmm. is she finally like, oh, I get an ellipsis and like two phrases that don't actually seem to connect in my album title. Um, but I thought it was interesting because, you know, she continues to work with John Elijah for the remainder of her albums. And I, I feel like it's the John Elijah sound that kind of sanitizes things for me. But mm. what she does on elephants is she works, she works with a producer named Mark, Mike Mojas. And this guy is a guy that had been working with like bright eyes. I think he's a member of bright eyes. Oh. And he'd also done some albums with like Rilo Kylie. And I think that you can hear the difference of like happenstance to elephants that there is, there is a little more spontaneity, I think, in the feeling of the production for Elephants that I think that she's continued to develop in her independent releases. Like, I think all of her independent releases, they really seek to give you that you were there in the room kind of feeling, even if it is like a pop song, you know, mm -hmm. there's never the sense that like this was a curated, recorded and heavily produced experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well... It's a great song. I'm going to post both versions of the song okay. to this week's playlist. People can decide for themselves. Like, what do you think of the two different versions of this song? Yeah. She also did two versions of the song Reason Why. So there's an EP version of that. 
and there's a happenstance version of that song. Um, I'll post both of those back to back. So like, yeah, like if anyone at home has any opinions about like, what do you think about the side by side versions? This is a rare, a rare opportunity to get to hear the same song produced in two completely different ways. It's, it's really, I think it's an interesting way to look at music and like why we actually like music and how much of that relies upon the artist and how much of that is completely outside of their control, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's kind of the theme of this podcast, right? Like yeah, a lot of times the things, I mean, it's just shedding light on the things that were outside of their control that affect sort of why you haven't heard from them or why it sounds different or why it didn't connect. So that's really interesting. Do you want to take us out? Yeah. Take okay. us away, Jason. We're done. We want to give a special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Check us out on social at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. And as always, as some of you have already done, email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com. We do read them and we are taking your suggestions. So thank you. Goodbye. Happy AAPI Heritage Ooh. Month belatedly. Ooh. See you next AAPI Heritage Month. <laughs>